Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. To another episode of Lunchtime Movie Review, the podcast where we look back at some of our childhood favorites and see if they stand the test of time. I'm Chris. I'm Jason. I'm Shane A. And I'm Patrick. And today, um, Jason, would you call this the largest fantasy film we've reviewed? You know, with all these munchkins in it? <laughs> it, it is. I was waiting. I, I didn't know that they were munchkins. I thought they were elves. Uh, it's one of those if it was a little bit later they'd be pecs but that's that's true there's there was definitely a lot of them uh today we're reviewing 1981's under the rainbow starring chevy chase and carrie fisher wearing a slip that rivals her slave leah outfit from return of the jedi but before we begin a word from our sponsor Follow the yellow brick road to Under the Rainbow, Tinseltown's hotel that celebrates diversity in a stereotypical fashion. Book now and take advantage of our yellow fever rate, which includes free travel insurance and a roll of film for any Japanese national. Due to recent events, all guests under four feet must be accompanied by an adult over five feet. In Hollywood, rainbows mean fun. Follow the yellow brick road and stay under the rainbow. I was seriously waiting to hear a racist Pearl in the River commercial from you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And uh, let's see. Oh, I have the summary this time. Under the Rainbow. The year is 1938, and the United States is still obsessed of being part of the Great Depression. Out in Kansas, a group of tramps, vagrants, and freeloaders suck up government resources quicker than you can say social welfare. Rollo Sweet is one of those unemployed bums looking for a free ride. He's so poor, he can't even afford to stand over four feet six inches. During a radio address from the president, Rollo fakes an injury where he slips off the roof of a barn and bumps his head. While it's lights out for our hero, the misunderstood Fuhrer of Germany is busy instructing his shortest agent, Otto Kregling? Sure. Sure. On his latest quest to find a pearl in a river. To do so, he must take a special map all the way to Hollywood, California, and give it to a Japanese agent in a white suit. Sounds simple enough. Out in California, Annie Clark's boss, Louie, orders her to look after 150 little actors who will play the munchkins in The Wizard of Oz. His dim-witted nephew, Homer, will assist in keeping these little shitheads under control. Next, we travel to New York, because this movie needs lots of setup. Federal agent Bruce Thorpe greets the... Duke of Austria and his wife, the Duchess, and their sweet little dog, Strudel, for a train ride to Hollywood, California. The Duke thinks there's an assassin after him, and we soon meet that assassin. His name is not Indigo Montoya, but the Duke's father killed the assassin's father, so the Duke must be prepared to die. As the train passes through Kansas, Rollo manages to sneak on board via a mailbag. Tiny hitchhikers have a lot of little tricks up their sleeves. Unfortunately for Rollo, the conductor spots him leaving the train when it arrives in Hollywood. Rollo flees for his little life, 
as many of the 1930s train industry tend to cook little midgets in hobo stews. Rolo stumbles into a group of munchkin actors and poses as one of them since all little people look the same. Annie even gives him a job in the film. Now, everyone heads to the Culver Hotel, which has been renamed the Hotel Rainbow for the weekend. Agent Thorpe has booked the entire top floor of the hotel for the Duke's safety, and they promptly check in. A group of Japanese tourist bus break down in front of the hotel, and they check in as well until the bus can be repaired. Otto arrives to the hotel to meet his Japanese agent, but when he enters the lobby, he sees a large group of yellow faces from the bus, and they are all dressed alike. Otto does what every undercover agent does in this situation. He yells out his secret phrase to a room of strangers, but no luck here. Annie Clark then shows up with her 151 Munchkin actors in one hand and her reservation for rooms in the other. But there's a little problem. Homer booked the rooms on the day before, but the hotel's whore of a telephone operator wanted to spend the weekend having her boss plow her poop chute. So she promptly threw out the reservation and told nobody about it. This leaves her boss's nephew, Henry Hudson, in charge of a staff of three to handle the situation. Fun fact of the day, this is the exact reason why Yelp was created. Page two. Otto gets pushed in with the munchkins as the real Japanese agent, Neko Murray, arrives. He quickly realizes he has the same problem as Otto, but with his slanted eyes, it's much harder to sort everyone out. That night at dinner, the dining room is full of midgets, white-suited Japanese men, and the assassin that is not named Indigo Montoya. The Duke, Duchess, Thorpe, and Strudel sit at an inconspicuous table in the middle of everyone. When the Duchess suddenly loses her pearl in her goose liver, a Japanese man yells out many times, the pearl is in the liver. Jason, did you want to give that line a shot by any chance? (laughs) The pearl is in the river. (laughs) Otto mistakenly thinks the yellow man yelled out the secret spy phrase, the pearl is in the river, so Otto greets him and places a military map inside the Wizard of Oz script he's reading. Unfortunately for Otto, Annie takes her script back right after with the map inside. As this is going on, the assassin that is not named Indigo Montoya puts a cyanide capsule in a wine glass meant for the Duke. It's Exidor from Mork and Mindy. (laughs) That is true. That's who that is, isn't it? However, he misses and puts the capsule in the Japanese man's glass instead, the same man who found the Duchess's pearl. He quietly dies in a face plant in his plate of food. By now, Otto and Nakamuri have met, and they think Annie killed the man for the map. They soon learn that Thorpe is an American agent, and he's working with her. The two set to get the map from Annie, but before it can happen, all the midgets are sent across the street to get into costume for tomorrow's filming. In Hollywood, nighttime is the best time to get 152 actors into costumes meant for the next afternoon. After getting changed, they all return for a night of drunken mayhem in their costumes in the hotel, except for Otto. He and Nakamori plan to get the map for Manny and corner her in the kitchen after searching her room for it. But Rollo's onto them. He duels Otto and wins, but Nakamori knocks him out with a frying pan. Annie hides from the men in a walk-in freezer, but gets locked in. Thorpe finds her and then gets locked in as well until Rollo rescues them all. They return to Annie's room to call the police, but the munchkins have destroyed all the lines. Thorpe and Annie go to the Duke's room to try there. However, while Thorpe is out, the Duke is alone, and the assassin, that is not named Indigo Montoya, and was Exidor in Mork and Mindy, manages to corner the Duke in his room. He says the reason he's trying to kill him is because his father was supposed to assassinate the Duke's father at the beginning of World War I, but he was late and missed a bus. 
Therefore, he must avenge his father's failure and assassinate the present Duke. The Duke runs out of the room for his life. When Thorpe and Annie arrive, Thorpe gives chase and tells the two men to stay there. The Duchess runs off after them anyway. The assassination chases the Duke into a barbershop. And right as the assassin is about to kill the Duke, Nakamori starts kung fu fighting. He's as fast as lightning and he knocks the assassin into the closet where he is knocked out. Nakamori and Otto use the Duke and Strudel as bait to get everyone into the barbershop. Eventually, they all show up and when they see Strudel scratching at its door... When they are all captured, they search. They are searched one by one, carry Fisher a little bit more efficiently than the others. Thorpe snaps Strudel's locket shut to get the agent's attention off the women. Otto throws Strudel out of the room as Thorpe is threatened one last time to produce the map. He tells them the map is in Strudel's locket, and Akamori has Otto get the dog. By now, Rollo has enlisted all the munchkins to nab Otto. When they spot him chasing after Strudel, they chase after Otto. Watching 150 midgets run in a mob is absolutely adorable. Meanwhile, the assassin wakes in the closet and jumps out to kill a duke, but Nakamori shoots him first. As his goes off, the assassin kills Nakamori too. Now Thorpe and Annie go after Otto. The chase breaks out across the street into the movie studio next to it. The film devolves into the last scene from Blazing Saddles without the escaping steam. As they cross many sound stages and the Gone with the Wind set. Finally, it all ends with Rollo crashing into the Emerald City set from The Wizard of Oz. When he wakes, we find that just like Dorothy, he never left Kansas and it was all a dream. But good news for him, a bus is headed for Hollywood, waiting for him with the other Munchkin actors so they can all work in movies. Little smiles around for everyone. The end. Six page summary, Patrick. One week after I said I wanted short summaries. Short like uh, the actors. Shit, yeah. short like the actors. I, I literally thought this was going to be a short podcast, and not uh, pun was intended. All right, <laughs> <laughs> Under the Rainbow was released on July thirty first, nineteen eighty one. So this was supposed to be a summer blockbuster, boys. Uh, it it felt like it, week. a fantasy blockbuster. <laughs> it was released the same week as Victory was Sylvester Stallone. The same month as Tarzan, The Ape Man, The Fox and the Hound, Endless Love, Escape from New York, and Arthur. Grossed over eighteen million dollars, which made it. Wow! Th- but look at that. Short people had a good run that with that movie list. I mean, Dudley Moore as well. He could have been in oh. Under the Rainbow. <laughs> I'm looking ahead at it like, well, Stallone's kind of short, but he's not that short. But. Well, drunk midgets, right? Oh, there you go. Yeah, Arthur uh, was the fortieth highest grossing <laughs> film of 1981, right behind The Incredible Shrinking Woman, Mommy Dearest, and Paternity. Oh. God, what a horrible HBO list. I'm having like flashbacks. I'm sorry to cut you off, Patrick. So now I know. Incredible shrinking woman. Just hurry up and turn on the garbage disposal and be done with this movie. (laughs) And finished right in front of The Howling, Eye of the Needle with Donald Sutherland, and Take This Job and Shove It with Robert Hayes. It was nominated for two Razzie Awards. Uh, Best Musical Score, which it lost to Legend of the Lone Ranger, conducted by Academy Award winning John Barry, and to Jason Chagrin, Worst supporting actor, Billy Barty, who lost to Steve Forrest for Mommy Dearest. You gotta be kidding me. Billy <laughs> Barty was the highlight of this whole movie. I know to you, but uh, Rotten Tomatoes has it at 0% critics, but only cr- five critics reviews were available and 47% audience. But how yeah. many of those critics were under f- five feet? None. None. I'm seeing, more. I think that's heightism. Could be a little <laughs> bit of ageism because Billy Barty was getting up there as well. Jason, it's a low number. What do you expect from a film with 
small people. Billy Barty did look like a ble- a bleach prune. He had- <laughs> okay, good. I'm, I'm glad we had that discussion. <laughs> well, Jason, you know, you and I were the two that wanted to review this film. Um, so what was your first thoughts after, uh, I'm going to assume you hadn't seen it in many years like me as well. What were your first thoughts on seeing it this last time? Well, you know, seeing it as a kid, uh, is different from seeing it as an adult, obviously, but I was amazed at how they treated each of the, the little actors, the munchkins in the film as little kids at, at no point were, I mean, they were like little kids who got to do adult things, but they didn't talk like adults. They didn't reason like adults. They were all about sex and just uh, a raunchy good time uh, with all of them. Uh, So that I was surprised. I don't, I don't remember seeing that or recognizing that as a kid. The other, obviously with the, the Japanese stereotypes, which just seemed to be huge in the eighties here, they didn't do themselves any favors by having them all actually look alike carrying cameras and they all die and no one really gives a damn. Yeah. And they get off the, the bus. It's the Japs bus. Oh, it <laughs> is the Japs bus. It right. is. Japanese sure. Photography society. Yeah. So I was waiting for the, uh, the boob scene because it's the early eighties. It's a comedy. So they have to throw in the random boob scene, which they did towards the end when the, uh, during the chase when they're all running through the showers. Complete so. with its own sound effect, which adds to the pleasure. That's right. And then one of the the littlest of the actors, I don't know that guy's name, but he had a hell of a, a look to him, uh, decided to stick around and do some raping. <laughs> and we were all supposed to be uh, entertained uh, by that. So uh, I was a little taken back uh, by it. The other thing is, in the early 80s, no one knew. I, I guess I didn't, so I shouldn't say no one. I was unaware of what a dick Chevy Chase really is in real life, but he always plays these sort of nice guys. This is his same role that he is in Foul Play. So it, it's just like he was going from one role to the other, playing these uh, these police officers or nice guy uh, federal agents. So I didn't think anything special with him. I, I kept wondering why he was even in the film. They could have wrote his entire part out and it would have been fine. Well, he uh, was a big box office draw. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, it seems like old times the year before, which had a pretty good presence on the HBO loop as well. Oh, and, that's right. Yeah. And, and, and But again, he plays sort of the nice guy. And that he's the nice guy criminal. But he, he plays the same damn role in all these early 80s films. Uh, I did appreciate seeing Princess Leia. I'll get to my favorite scene. Uh, later on when we <laughs> some other things because I had to pause it and take a good look. Um, <laughs> Not bad. But yeah, right. But Billy Barty to me was my my favorite character in this whole film. I love him uh, just in the beginning, hitting the fewer in the balls, yelling Heil Hitler. That sets the tone. And but for him, uh, this would be a complete failure. I think he's the success of this film. So overall, overall, I. I enjoyed it, but I don't know if I would watch it again. Nostalgic uh, racism and stereotypes are always the best. Yeah, I don't like, I I love how you summed up that it has the same ending as Blazing Saddles kind of running through the sets. I hate that scene. Mm -hmm. And I do hate that it's all a dream uh, as, you know, again, a throwback to the Wizard of Oz as if they didn't have enough in it already. 
Sheenie? Well, I, I never saw it as a child or even as a young adult. I really only saw this movie about nine or ten years ago, and I found it unfunny, astoundingly at times, <laughs> and tasteless. I like some um, aspects of it, but overall... Um, I didn't know what all the fuss was about because I've heard about it for years and I thought the concept was really weird and different and it intrigued me, but I never actually watched it as a kid. So as an adult, I got pretty much everything that was going on and watching it a second time recently for this podcast, it didn't get any better. But Billy Barty was a highlight and as much as I like Chevy Chase, you're right, he did Caddyshack the year before this and Caddyshack's still one of my favourite comedies ever and uh this doesn't back it up did you lose a bet eight or nine years ago to have to watch this film or (laughs) no it was on it was on we don't have like hbo but we have like a a paid television station called foxtel so that's where i saw it on the movie channel and um yeah that's that i watched it on my own accord because of carrie fisher of course did it did it come on like after going ape with tony danza like it did on hbo (laughs) when i watched it that's a perfect no, double feature. No idea. It probably came on after Police Academy or something. Oh wow, what a what a drop off! Police Academy comedy gold. Things in it just wouldn't uh, fly now, especially the Japs on the side of the bus. I know it stood for Japanese Amateur Photography Society, but those sort of things are kind of like funny then and not so funny now. I don't know how funny yeah. it was in 1981. <laughs> no. And, it, and it's PG, so the classification must have been very open for 1981. It didn't seem like a PG movie to me. No, it didn't. They talked about they talked about sex a lot. Like the some of the little actors were talking about uh, prostitutes, and at one point they have a guy pinned down, and there's like an orgy going on. I was surprised it was PG. Well, in one of those particular party scenes they were lined up at the door and then someone had come back out you know doing his pants up so it was all intended to be over the top which it was but definitely not pg yeah doesn't one of them say that's the first time i got to go up on a girl or something like that (laughs) it was like a really adult uh phrase and it, it took me by surprise i ended up laughing at it which is probably why i still kind of enjoyed it I saw this on the HBO loop like Chris and Jason when I was a kid. The only reason I watched it back then was Chevy Chase and Carrie Fisher. And I don't even know if I really knew Chevy Chase that well, other than Seems Like Old Times and maybe Caddyshack. Uh, this is before Vacation. But Carrie Fisher was Princess Leia, so she didn't do a lot of other movies. I mean, that was so that's why I watched it. Plus, I remember the preview on. Uh, like they'd show a little clip on HBO to kind of tease you for it. And it was the scene where Billy Barty cuts the dress off of her and says, not bad. And so I was like, okay, well, she's, you know, that was an interesting scene. So I remember I I was nine years old. I was about to get to that age, but I don't remember it as being a good movie back then. I remember watching it all the time because it was on all the time during Mm -hmm. the day. And when I get home from school or if I had to stay home, sick from school that it was just whatever was on HBO is what I watched. And that was, right. yeah. So HBO back then didn't play the rated R movies until later on in the evening. So everything right. was G or PG during the day. And this is one of the PG ones they just put on loop. Yeah. That's why I saw this one. That's why I saw for your eyes only. That's why I saw going ape. I'm sh- sure multiple times. I mean, there was a lot of 
films that I saw on Golden Pond probably about ten times. I don't even like that movie that much, and you know that's a that hard much. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you like it somewhat. So, but they did put on on airplane every once in a while, which <clears throat> I think is a much more, uh, you know, hardcore. It should be an R-rated film, and that's PG as well. Oh, I've heard I've heard you guys mention Going Ape a couple of times. I've never seen that or heard of it. What am I missing? Tony Danza and orangutans and Danny DeVito. <laughs> oh, it's gold. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> just it's. I, I said going ape because the orangutans are the gimmick in that movie, and in this movie, it's the little actors that are the gimmick. So oh, yeah, speaking of orangutans, uh, any which way you can. That was also on during the day all the time. That's yeah. another one. It's all about. Yeah, but, that but that's a good movie. Yeah, that's a good movie. I like that movie. Yeah, you know, as a little kid, it was the perfect humor. Uh, I think it went all that racism went over my head for sure. Uh, not even the Japs on the side of the bus, I, I wouldn't have even noticed until I saw it. Uh, well, I own the film, so uh, sadly to say I own the film, and so I recognize that now. But um, it was definitely not uh, as racist to me as a little kid because you just don't even think about those things. Yeah, you know, I, I don't particularly know when the – when the Americans started, when we, I say the Americans, when we uh, started making fun of the Japanese for their camera use, but it just seems like that was, it was almost like Polish jokes growing up. It was just, it is what it is. Like no one ever explained it to me. And, and again, you see it in, in movie after movie, and this takes it to another level. I mean, all the Japanese are the same. They all dress the same. They all have the same cameras, except the Japanese spy whose gun is a camera. <laughs> and they it's, were take I think they were taking photos of the bus and the wheel of the bus of everything right <laughs> they were taking yeah. pictures of pictures right yeah and and so you wonder how the like Mako who's the Japanese spy in this film you wonder if he was okay with it you know I I, I imagine he must have been because they were giving him a paycheck but you know, it's one of those is, is did he choose that role or was there just kind of nothing else out there? And this was, you know, food on the table or did he just kind of embrace that sort of humor? Well, unless it, it's really it done tongue in cheek. Yeah, well, it's a paycheck. And even back then, you know, Japanese American actors weren't finding a lot of roles. I mean, think of all the shows that we've watched where you have someone playing uh, Japanese who's not Japanese. Uh, right. Just a few years after this was was the adventures of. Uh, not Adventures of Dr. Bronze, Remo Williams, they have, like, is it Joel? Guy, the guy from freaking Cabaret, I can't even think of it, playing... Joel uh, Gray. Joel Gray, playing a, a Japanese, like, karate master. And like, well, is that June. because they couldn't afford a real Japanese karate master? I have no idea. I mean, uh, the Adventures of Remo Williams is like a B-movie. That one gets pretty panned. It's also another one from the HBO loop that I like to watch. But, uh, yeah, that's that's not necessarily the best of films that stood up to the test of time. Yeah, there's a show, this series that, that I've been meaning to lend to Jason for a long time called Tales of the Gold Monkey, where they have an American actress playing a, a Japanese princess, but she's very obviously not Japanese. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite, I mean, we've seen it with our other series, uh, Sunday Seconds with the Duke, where, you know, white actors, it doesn't matter what the race is, your white actors are going to be wearing makeup that makes them look close to that stereotype. And uh, so I don't really imagine even 
from the 60s up into the 80s that it had changed that much. Even today, people complain that they need to get Japanese actors for some of these parts. Right. But I mean, it, it's one thing having a white guy play a Japanese guy and we're going to make fun of the Japanese. It's another thing to have a Japanese actor sign up to be made fun of. Mm-hmm. Well, it's still it's still happening, boys. Uh, Emma Stone in Aloha was supposed to be playing a Hawaiian Asian girl. And even Ghost in the Shell, which I only saw this week, uh, Scarlett Johansson supposed to be Japanese. So it's still happening. I don't know a whole lot about of the Marvel films, but isn't Wolverine supposedly somewhat Japanese in the comics oh, too? Canadian. Oh, oh. <laughs> I get those two yeah. confused all the time. And speaking of Canadians. No. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Jason, do you want to talk about uh, the best scene of this film? Well, yeah, my, my favorite scene and the one that really caught me by surprise is sort of a, it's a, it's debatable. This is what I'm going to say. So I'm going to preface it by saying, I don't know if I saw what I really saw because when I streamed the movie, the quality of the stream wasn't in high definition, uh, but I was watching it on my television set and it's right when Billy Barty cuts Princess Leia's clothes off and begins the sword fight with Rolo. So as Rolo and, and Otto are sword fighting, uh, Carrie Fisher's making her way around uh, the kitchen. And in a one shot, it really did look to me like her blouse slipped down and you see some nip. I did pause it, but again, the quality on the stream was pretty pixelated. Uh, but it definitely looked like there was some dark area in the middle of her breast, which I believe is a uh, nipple. And this is three years before Slave Leah. So that's pretty exciting back in the day. It's pretty exciting now. <laughs> I mean, obviously, if I, you know, if you slept with her at that point, you'd wake up and your stereo would be gone because she was out buying drugs. But I think it'd still be worth it. Ouch. It's, isn't it too soon to talk? No, I'm only joking. Um, <laughs> to I, talk about I stereos? No. Chance. Stereos no, are pretty. Princess Leia is, is alive oh, uh, in my pants. Was the early, it was the early 80s when she did that, Shane. It's not too soon. So. All right. <laughs> um, well, speaking of uh, her nipple, I'm pretty sure, and it's been a while since I've seen it in shampoo, there's some of that as well because she was in that with Warren Beatty, but it's been a while. And that was, was she, about that was about five or six years wasn't before. Was she like sixteen or seventeen when she made that movie? Underage <laughs> Carrie Fisher nipple. Now you've just added a movie to Jason's uh, queue on Netflix. <laughs> but I I did try to Google it and I didn't see anyone ever discussing it. So maybe maybe I'm mistaken. Uh, and I was hoping maybe to have a just a clearer uh, stream of the movie to to verify. It, I mean, it's very quick. Did you watch it on the computer or television? On the television. I streamed it from Amazon Prime. Oh, okay. So what was better scene for you, Jason? The the Slave Leah scene or her getting her dress cut off? Oh, well, well Slave Leia is, is obviously the better scene. It's a far better movie. I mean, where little people kick ass, they're not treated like children. They're Jedi Masters. Although they're ostracized to the swamp area and are kind of menacing at times, but. Or the forest planet. Or the yeah, forest planet. Well, I, I don't even, those are dogs. Those aren't, those aren't little people that they're not even human. They're subhuman. 
the Empire should have just wiped them out. Weren't you pissed off that Warwick Davis wasn't in this? That's what you were bitching to me about yesterday. I was, right. I mean, Warwick Davis is the quintessential 80s little actor. Yeah, but he was, he, in 1980, if, if this was filmed in 1980, he was probably only seven, maybe eight years old. He's a little too young to play one of the actors in it. No, just throw hey. him in there. Just yeah, throw hey. him in there. He was too small. He was too little. He was too little. He was too little. There's that other guy that fit in people's pocket, the one who snuck into the showers to rape the women. That dude was, he was half a Rolo's height. And Rolo was the bigger of the mid. Did you notice this? This is another thing. They picked the biggest of the little actors to kind of lead them. And that was the Rolo. And he, he was terrible. He's not even a good actor. Hammer he was down. barely a midget. And Rolo's real name is Cork. That's ironic as well. <laughs> is it cork or is it cock? <laughs> I hope it's cork. <laughs> and was Rolo named after the Rolo candy? Of course, because he's cute and he's pudgy and he's full of warm liquid. And he's fill, filled with caramel. Melts in your mouth. I, it, was, it was cool to spot Zelda Rubenstein, uh, Tangina from Poltergeist. Yeah. I thought that Carol, was cool. The light, Carol Ann. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she, she was the one who um, who got the rope. Do you want to join yes, a party? Is that her? Yes, and tied and tied up the big fat guy. There was everything in this S and M, dick jokes, big, big enus, big enus. It was big enus. Big enus was one of the writers of the film. <laughs> he, he was Pat McCormick. <laughs> yeah. Oh, holy cow! Those um, those munchkins sure knew how to party out of control. They were perverted completely. Yeah, right. Don't don't you see? It's like, well, these are this is what kids would be like if if we let them do whatever they want. Well, Shane, life is short, so you got to take advantage of it while you can. <laughs> another another short joke. Rumor has it that on the actual set of Wizard of Oz, I must have read this somewhere, that they did actually all get together and party, all the actors that were playing the munchkins back in 1939. So maybe it's kind of based on some kind of true story or rumor. I would have preferred that story rather than this one. The dream sequence kind of ruins it all. Well, of course, if they put you in those outfits, you're going to have to drink some alcohol. My dislikes outrate my likes, but I did like the trip through the movie backlot, especially with the Gone with the Wind set. thought that was pretty cool. Any any movie that sort of goes not beyond the fourth wall, but goes into like another movie studio or something and shows behind the scenes is always pretty cool. And I like that moment. Right, because they did it a number of times, right? In the beginning of the film, when she was given yeah. her assignment, they were showing the Gone with the Wind scenes. Also, there was a lot of bored boredom in it because there was these long stretches of gaps of nothingness in between a slapstick farce right so i i agree i think the worked. pacing the pacing of the movie was very slow they they didn't have enough jokes and the jokes they did had uh, the racist the racist jokes aside because we talked a lot and i think enough about them but all of the comedy was sort of uh like a vaudeville uh, sort of comedy. It had that zany sort of music, like they'd hit the yeah. the drums with the joke, so you, you made sure that that was your moment to laugh. And, <laughs> you know, the stuff wasn't funny, and I kept thinking, 
are they doing that to get the audience to laugh? And that's how maybe they thought contemporary comedy was, or this was a throwback again to the vaudeville sort of age of the 1920s and 1930s that was still going on. And they were trying to recreate that. That was unclear to me, but either way, it didn't work in this film. See, I thought they were going for 1930s humor, sort of that vibe, throw everything back. Yeah, they were in a way because the chase scenes and the brawling, they, they were either um, put in like fast forward or slowed down either way, like to give you more of a reaction to it, maybe a cross between like a, a carry on film almost what they were doing in the 60s and 70s. Well, Under the Rainbow just commits the ultimate crime, and this is classified as a comedy. A comedy should never be boring, and this is predominantly boring and even though there's a lot happening at times it didn't didn't work and that's probably why it wasn't the big hit they might have expected to be considering when they released it in 1981 it suffers from the comedy of like 1941 as well it's 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 i i would put those two films together that the it's manufactured sort of zaniness that they think is going to be really entertaining and it totally backfires Mm. Well, and this one has Chevy Chase, too. Not one of the best actors of all time. And he's sleepwalking through the role. As you said, his character doesn't need to be there. Doesn't really move the story along. Well, the whole story of the Duke and the assassin and the replacing the dogs, all of that, you could write that all out and it wouldn't change an iota of the film at all. The main plot of Rolo and the map. The Duke, they just kind of threw in there. And the dog joke kind of worked once, maybe twice, because the Duchess was blind, pretty much. So it worked once or twice, but then they kept going with it. And yeah. So, Jason, did you find the dogs dying is kind of boring and not very funny? Yeah, I did. All right, but it's fucking hilarious and Fish Called Wanda, not to bring back an old podcast where you and I disagreed on a damn film, but that it was hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, but it, it wasn't supposed to be like the comedy of errors. Like, oh, it's the same dog and these dogs are meeting their timeless deaths. The fish called Wanda, it was funny because he was trying to kill the woman and he's a dog lover and he keeps accidentally killing the dogs. That was advancing the plot and it was entertaining to see how the murder was always going to be screwed up where these dogs ended up meeting their demise. A dead dog in of, in of, of itself isn't funny. And in this film, it made... It, it served no purpose. None. They could have had Toto in the beginning. That was the Duke's dog if they wanted to introduce Toto, which is what that story, that subplot was supposed to do, and not had Toto die at all, and the film should, would have been just exactly the same. But how would you have had your sheep jokes if there was no trip to the pet store? Yeah. <laughs> every every 80s comedy needs a, a sheep joke. See uh, Revenge of the Nerds. But to go back to Patrick's question, I think that in Fish Called Wanda, to me, it was a little bit more comedic fitting with the tone of the film. And uh, it was a little bit funnier in a dark comedy sort of sense. Whereas in in this film, it, it just it really did not add anything. The the best part might have been where where um strudel drank the the wine and he started and he died and was being dragged behind but other than that the other scenes it really didn't matter it was just uh you could have taken it out but i i would agree with you it's not funny and it's not it's kind of pointless in this film it doesn't do anything 
but I also don't think it was that funny in a fish called Wanda either. So, and not because I'm a huge animal lover, but it, it's just that I just, it's a one, tr- the first time it's funny after that it's repetitive. Mm-hmm. I, I disagree. I think it works fantastically in the fish called Wanda. I think fish called Wanda is a, obviously a far better film. And I think Patrick, you'd agree with that. At yes, least. I will agree with that. It's a far yeah. better film with a far better cast, but you Absolutely. didn't like fish called Wanda, right? Patrick was, was I thought it was okay. Okay. I just thought it was okay. I didn't. I, I don't hate the film. I just, I know when we did that, Greg and Jason just raved and took uh, took offense when Matt and I went, eh, it's all right. You know, I think Matt was more negative than I was, but I, it's an okay film. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it has some of the. There's a lot of repetitive things about it that aren't funny by the end of the film because you're showing me the same kind of joke. I remember liking I remember- that one a lot more than this. Oh, yeah, I definitely liked it a lot more than this film. Absolutely. Even today, I find it in its time. I liked it better. And even today, I find I I would watch A Fish Called Wanda again. Um, I probably will never watch Under the Rainbow other than to go back to Jason's scene to verify that hey, there's a nipple. <laughs> I, um, I've never been a Monty Python fan, and I don't think A Fish Called Wanda is officially a Monty Python movie, but I do like it better than this movie. And like Patrick, I won't be revisiting Under the Rainbow again and not even to check the that scene <laughs> that Jason highlighted. Well, like I said, I own it, so I can check it multiple times. Well, I'm about to tear the rainbow sticker off the bumper of my car. I hated this film so much. <laughs> I mean, were there any groups that this film did not offend? Can you think? Animal lovers. I guess even though it's Under the Rainbow, there weren't gay uh, there wasn't any gay uh, jokes, but other than that, no. I think they pretty much hit all of the groups. Pissed off just about I, everybody. I, well, yeah, except except white men, yeah, and, yeah. And, and white women, I guess. Well, I was offended by Chevy Chase because yeah, I mean, I was offended just watching it, <laughs> but but they weren't trying to make fun of mm-hmm. me. I guess they they had a different kind of torture in mind for the viewers of this film. I wasn't offended by Chevy Chase because I know what he can do. But around this time, he wasn't he wasn't having all hits. There was a lot more misses than hits. Just because of his popularity on SNL, I guess, which we never got down under. Uh, so I never saw it as a kid well, anyway. But, I think it's for yeah. also lack of selection of actually choosing a film and doing everything that came across your table and. And then also the yeah, drugs yeah. that he was on during that time frame as well. You know, also, Patrick, sure. you've said in the past where Chevy Chase is better kind of playing a straight man, uh, you know, like Christmas Vacation, where he does better um, when he's not trying, like at the beginning of the film, where it's pretty much him re- being relied on for the comedy versus when Randy Quaid comes on and he's playing off yeah. of him. And I think that's when, kind of what this is missing, too. Yeah, he doesn't have somebody to play off that well. He's. Um, he, he plays better in comedies when he's got a partner to work with. Unfortunately, everybody hates working with him, is my understanding. So, you know, that's why it doesn't necessarily work. And I don't think Carrie Fisher enjoyed working with him for this film either. I, I think that's, Patrick, that's a brilliant point because, as I said, I think he plays the same role he does in Foul Play as he does in this movie. But I like Foul Play a lot more because there's other funnier people around him like Dudley Moore. Right. And, and even Goldie Hawn. And Carrie Fisher is not the laugh riot. No, she's no, no, she's not. 
she she has a sense of humor, but you don't see it on screen in a lot of the films she does. Yeah, she's she doesn't have great comedic timing. Or maybe she does, but uh, they didn't utilize it in this film. She was unfunny in this film. Basically, everyone was, except Billy Bartley. <laughs> and, and Billy she, might not have was, even been trying to be funny, to be honest with you. She um, she was funny in Drop Dead Fred. That is not a good film. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for your reaction. Yeah, thanks for that, boys. <laughs> and Billy Barty, yeah, you're right with Billy Barty. He, he's, I don't think he was trying to be funny. It's his voice and his mannerisms and everything. Yeah, I mean, he has a German with. accent and it's really funny. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's all and, right. And, no, he did have some pretty funny lines. Him and Mako, I think had some uh, uh, at least a little chemistry with one another no they were they were good between the two of them and what they were doing once you had like a comedy pair individually i didn't think they were that funny but i thought they worked well as a kind of a comedy duo in the in the in the film but that's about the only thing that worked right right well peter dinklage is uh, an actor who's obviously he's a short midget and he does so many movies now and he t- he sort of takes the mickey out of himself at times in some of his films so i don't think they'll ever remake something like this but i do think that political incorrectness can you know if it's done right can be overlooked and someone like peter dinklage who's so huge not just from game of thrones but movies as well he's you know he's he's not treated any differently as far as i'm aware no, no. I think he chooses his roles very well, and he hits the prejudice that he faces head on. I, I mean, if you watch the movie like a station agent, I, I think yeah, that's an amazing movie. Yeah, absolutely. Blown away by him in that because people do treat him like a child, which is what this film does entirely. Yes, yeah. but without ever saying that they're not children, that they're right. adults, just like the rest of us. All right, let's go around the table. Uh, last thoughts. Uh, does this film stand the test of time? Uh, Patrick, how about you? Um, didn't really care for it. Saw it a lot, but not just just because it came on television. Didn't really care for it back then. Would watch it, watch it for Chevy Chase and Carrie Fisher. I Like Jason, I was kind of surprised at a lot of the racism and um, dwarfism, I guess, would be the best way to describe it. And the this PC world that we are... 30 something years later. So um, I don't think it stands the test time. I have a hard time imagining anybody ever trying to remake even something like this. Cause I just don't think audiences would accept it. It would be, it would be too offensive, but no, do not like it. Yeah. I saw it. Like I said, as a kid on HBO all the time, I would watch it. Uh, I think I laughed at some of the jokes, uh, the vast majority of them, 95% of them. I did not, Uh, laugh at even as a kid as an adult i agree with patrick i didn't pick up the racism as a kid but as an adult it's shocking and there's a reason why it's probably uh hard to find on a blu-ray despite uh carrie fisher's maybe nipple (laughs) well the possible nipple moment uh isn't enough for me to watch this again ever and i've seen it twice now that's enough it didn't get better the second time and it has a place i think in uh it has not it's not a cult film but it's definitely uh something that is always being talked about on and off but it is hard to find i think warner archive are the only ones where you can get it now online 
um, to buy anyway. So it's I'm glad I've seen it so I can discuss it if anyone asks me about it, but not impressed. And it commits the crime of being a comedy and unfunny. Well, you know, I agree with that. Um, like I've said, I own this. This is probably the second uh, digital film I ever bought right after Arthur, if that tells you anything. But um, film like this is why we do this podcast. Something that you loved as a kid and then you watch it uh, years later and you're like, what the hell was I thinking? And as Patrick and Jason said, the, the racism is just mind boggling in today's world. You you definitely don't get that as a kid. Um, but I do remember the Carrie Fisher scene very well, watching that many times and the boob popping out in the shower and the little midget pervert. Uh, I'll let you pick which one that is. Um, but no, this does not stand the test of time. It has its moments, but those are very, very few and far between in today's uh, viewing. So, uh, yeah, this is, even though I own it, I'm not going to be watching it too often in the future. I still can't get over it being PG. Such a stretch. Well, it's kind of like um, Bad News Bears, the Walter Matthau version. Um, he, he's uh, drinking and driving. He's got a bunch of kids in the back not wearing seatbelts in a convertible. Yeah. You know, it, it's just a different time. So I could see it. I think if it came out today and they actually were to make it, it would be PG-13 and maybe, well, I think it would be PG-13 because there wasn't any cursing and there was a um, <clears throat> maybe a, a boob popping out and a lot of smoking, but I'd other than that, I think it would just be seen as tasteless. They, they would they would remake it as a serious drama, and it would star Peter Dinklage uh, being cast as a munchkin in The Wizard of Oz, and to his utter shame. That's what that's what the movie would be if it was today. They might drag it out to a three movie series. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yeah, the the stinger would be something with Gone mm-hmm. with the Wind. Well, that's it for today's nostalgic review. Please let us know what you think of the film in the comments section on our website and rate it from one to five stars on that page as well. If there is an 80s film you'd like us to review, please send us an email at comments at moviehousememories.com with your name, your pick, and your location. And finally, if you are of the social media persuasion, you can look the MHM Podcast Network up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you do, please give us a follow when you find us. On behalf of the whole gang here at Lunchtime Movie Review, thanks for tuning in. And until next time, we have to get out of here and you guys are invited. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme song for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is brought to you by Alexander Nakarada at SerpentineSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted.